I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film The Last of the Mohicans through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. Today, my guest is, well, he, he he threw an absolute bomb on me after One Heat Minute. After all of our time talking heat, after going off and making a really muscular, William Freakin-esque, badass crime movie, after all of our languid discussions about contemporary crime, this guy drops a bomb on Twitter and a bomb right onto me and says, you know what? My favorite Michael Mann movie might be Last of the Mohicans. And it just so happens that in the madness of the occurrence of this project, uh, this man's uh, uh, truth bomb, this reveal, this unexpected twist has made me want to talk uh, to my dear friend who I've talked to many times about Michael Mann by now. And it would feel if I did this project without him would just feel incomplete. Ladies and gentlemen, my awesome and talented filmmaking friend, Joe Lynch. Joe. Welcome. Thank you. So wow, that that was a hell of an intro. And <laughs> I could I could say that we would both be considered manspurts at this point. Manspurts, mansplainers. Yeah. Some people that, you know what? <laughs> manspurt actually does not sound very good <laughs> upon it like fa- falling from my lips. I'm After like, it mm. manspurted out of your mouth, then <laughs> <laughs> Oh no. This has already gone off the rails. Um, thank you so much, Blake. And first off, let me just say that as uh, as someone who was a fan first of, of One Heat Minute and has been become, I guess, part of the One Heat Minute team, uh, you know, in a way, or guest guest team, uh, to see how this cra- that, that crazy experiment, our art installation, which I like to call it, um, culminated with you sitting down, well, virtually, with Michael Mann. Dude, that was one of the best episodes of any podcast that I had oh. ever heard. Joe, it really you. was, dude. And I'm not and it's not lip service, and I swear I'm not just doing this because we still have a lot to talk about. <laughs> but that was I mean, you could not get, have gotten a better ending. The only ending better would be the last twelve minutes of Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> well, and, and that is and that is right. So for, for folks, if this is your first episode because you're a now Fangoria presents movie crypt podcasting fan and a diehard, okay. you you 
you're going to be listening to this going, the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, why is Blake going back? If I did listen to any episodes of One He Minute, it's the one with Michael Mann, and he said, I told you I was never going back. Well, Michael Mann is going to be the final episode on this show. And, what? And doesn't it feel even more gross that after speaking for 130 hours on one movie to not try and talk about what makes this movie um, a, a complete masterwork in its own right, in a completely different way, and particularly why my focus is, and I know that you've even just talked about it, your most recent tweet, like talking about the third act of this movie, the finale of this movie, the last 12 minutes of The Last of the Mohicans, really going from the Huron Sasham sort of judgment being laid out, Duncan's mm-hmm. sacrifice, Magua exiting with Alice, Uncas's tireless pursuit, that entire vin- you know, vignette, silent action film in the middle pure of this. Cinema. Pure cinema. It's pure it's pure cinema. If you can count the amount of dialogue that happens from the moment Duncan uh, Duncan sacrifices himself until, you know, Magua's ultimate demise there is maybe three lines of dialogue. It's That's it. pure. It's pure cinema. Pure cinema, an eclectic sound design, performances that you've been completely invested in. Some of the most evocative visuals that have ever been captured on film in a, in a time that I think you could still be able to get the American, you know, vista in a, in a, in a pure and un CG form. And I, I, I like I. This was one of the first movies. Do you mind if we go back? Can we go back for a minute, Blake? Let's go back. Let's go back. Okay. Because, you know, Last of the Mohicans was one of the first films that in my, like, nascent days of discovering not just movies, but auteurs and cinema and the, the voices of these artists. You know, I remember the time, 91, when I had seen Reservoir Dogs and went, oh my God, this guy is speaking on a level of movies and pop culture and, you know, and just cinema language in a way that I had never seen before or at least seen in a recent film. Yes. And that, that felt like it opened up my world. So like that open creative wound in 91 was like literally just like completely wide open, ready for anything. And I, I specifically remember uh, my mom, who was a big movie fan herself. She would take me and the boys after school sometimes to go to do either one movie or two movies if we were feeling up to it. <laughs> and she had been such a big Michael Mann fan, along with my dad, of Miami Vice. And, you know, I, I enjoyed Miami Vice, but Michael Mann was not the same Michael Mann that I revered ever since. It was, oh, that's the guy who really enjoyed Phil Collins and Fast Cars. And he was, to me, he was a modernist. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, he was one of those directors that you could go give him a gun, a flashy car, and the neon skyline of L.A., and you know he's going, or or Miami or New York or whatever, and he's going to present you something that feels fresh and of the moment. Yeah, you know, and, his, his, and, his ahead, and ahead of the moment, right? Like, so when yeah, you exactly. think of it, it's, it's, he was a style, a tastemaker. And so when you, yeah. when you think of him and people think of him often in that contemporary context, even when you throw back, it's like, he's like, no, I'm going to create the style. I'm going to create the templates for what the future yeah. is. I'm going to see where the he, gaps are. 
they always talk about world builders, right? Yes. And, and I, you know, they always talk about like Ridley Scott and Stanley Kubrick. And I feel like, and especially once this movie came out and has, you know, stood the test of time, you know, Michael Mann is also one of those amazing world builders that you don't realize it's a world build until you've seen the film, you know? Yeah. yeah. Every, you know, uh, Thief, even The Keep, um, you know, obviously, you know, The Insider and, you know, and all the other public, even, you know, public enemies in a way. But there, there's very few filmmakers that go to the level of detail and authenticity that is not only there just to get the actors in the moment, but the audience is so ensnared by all the detail that he puts into it. Like looking at the behind the scenes uh, documentary that's on the Blu-ray, you know, the, there's these shots of just these soldiers and they're just hanging out and they're sipping coffee and they're around a campfire and stuff. And the way that he shoots it almost feels like documentary style Yes. until you realize that, my God, by the time you get to the, the third act, you're not looking at the level of authenticity. You're just so in that world that all you care about is the characters and you're so invested in those characters. So to back up, you know, my mom would take me, take us to the movies and this was, you know, the multiplex days where, you know, there'd be, 12 movies playing all the time. So she decided, like, all right, we're going to go see Under Siege, <laughs> Steven Seagal, <laughs> Gary Busey, oh. Tommy Lee Jones, Andrew Davis classic Under Siege. Chewing. And if we were the up scenery to scenery being chewed to death. Oh, my God. In the best way possible. And in, never in the, again the has there been a scenery way. chewing pairing like Busey and TLJ in that movie. Oh, my goodness. That is fun. Yeah, go, oh, go and, and Oh, and by the way, like Erica Alaniac like pops out of a cake, cake. naked. Of so course. Let's just say that it was the best afternoon screening ever <laughs> or so we thought. Right now, look, it's my mom's got three, three young boys, you know, under under siege is like the perfect movie for them. Perfect. So she was like, yep, we'll go see that. But. I want to go see this movie after The Last of the Mohicans. And I had a cursory interest in it because I had just seen My Left Foot on video and I thought, man, I'll see whatever that fucking dude does. And, you know, I, I knew about Michael Mann a little bit. Weirdly enough, in Entertainment Weekly, they would have like these fall previews, right, yes. where they would come detail all the films that are coming out that season. And I, I'm pretty fucking sure, and I kind of remember this, but they would have like director Michael Mann and then writer. They would have the writer underneath. And I think they made a typo because it said writer Michael Mann and Cameron Crowe. Yeah, not, not Christopher, Christopher Crowe. <sighs> yeah. I thought it was Cameron Crowe. So I actually went into the movie thinking, well, if it's the guy who, who wrote Say Anything, like I'm <laughs> curious to see what the hell this is all about. <laughs> so, so unfortunately for Christopher Crowe, uh, like, I didn't go in for him. But I, I was like, of course, hey, I'm going to go see a second movie. And I remember I have not been that affected by a film since seeing Chuck Russell's The Blob in the same multiplex. I, I was completely blown away, so much so that that night we were driving back and there was a CD store. Remember these places called CD stores? <laughs> we remember them we, well. We stopped off and I got the soundtrack that night. Because it it just blew me away on so many fronts, not just visually, but orally as well. Like yeah. the sound design, the music, it it opened my eyes. And I from that point on, I remember becoming obsessed with Michael Mann. Because again, 
this was a movie that was out of his comfort level, at least on paper. Yes. You know, when, when even, you know, Madeline Stowe, when she was reading the script in the behind the scenes, she said, this, re- this reads like an action film. So, but, you know, like they keep saying that it's a love story. And she goes, but I underestimated the power of Michael Mann. But even then, if you looked at any of his earlier work, Manhunter, Thief, The Keep, you know, Miami Vice, of course, you would think that it was going to be a muscular action film. Yet, watching it again yesterday, which any chance that I get to watch that movie is a joy and a privilege. So thank you for giving me the excuse to sit down <laughs> in the afternoon. Like when I tweeted that out, I had people going, what kind of fucking job do you have? You can sit there and watch a two hour movie during the day. I'm like, it's research and it's very important. <laughs> but, but, you know, looking at that film again, it, it's such a joy to watch, but it's also, it, it always comes down to, well, it's the Michael Mann historical film. At least at that time it was like, well, you know, he's trying to do a period film. It felt like it was out of his comfort zone. But watching it again, it is so much a Michael Mann film that it has all the vi- the same vis- visual flourishes, even down to like in the beginning of the f- like, no, in the middle of the film, when Hawkeye is about to shoot uh, uh, Magua at one point, it's the same exact shot construct from the moment when uh, Al Pacino shoots Tom Sizemore in heat. The same exact <laughs> fucking shots. And I can't fault him for it. That's just his, that's his language. You know, that's like telling someone, you know, that's like telling, telling but, but it's, you know, to say, like, no, don't say, okay, or all right. You know, like you can't do that. It's just part of his visual language and how he was able to, uh, to use a lot of the same kind of visual tricks and the same kind of visual language in a world that feels so completely removed from his normal kind of modernist cinema tropes is so refreshing to watch even today like watching it again there's so many period films like i just watched uh, the patriot was just on the yeah. mel gibson the mel gibson movie, one right? yeah with uh, roland emmerich who directed that and what's really interesting is that you think about period films and how they're supposed to feel as nebulous and timeless as possible other than maybe the actors who end up being in it in most cases you would hope that a film that's set in a period can kind of supersede when it was produced, right? Yes. But you look at The Patriot, and that movie feels incredibly late 90s. Oh. It does not feel like it could stand the test of time, whereas when you look at Last of the Mohicans, the way that man approached it felt so fresh and so modern-like that it does not feel dated one bit. I mean, no. even looking at the performance, you know, I, like I'm watching it now going, I bet I could fool someone into thinking that this movie was made today and they just visually de-aged uh, <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis. Or that he somehow, in his rigorous uh, <laughs> body, body sculpting, somehow figured out a way to de-age himself through acting. <laughs> like, I, would not, I wouldn't put it past him, but The Last of the Mohicans, on every level, has, from the themes to the visualization to the, to the sound design and down to the performances themselves, feels as fresh and of the moment, if not, like you were saying, you know, pre, like uh, ahead of its time, even today. And this, this movie's nearly 30 years old. It's, it's, there's it's only, amazing. There's, and it's really funny, Joe, that you said that it's, um, it's, there's a very particular flavor of Michael Mann's 
contemporary flair when it comes to just his like film grammar like he just kind of gets it there's just something that that continues to translate in everything that he does but the only other movie that i think where i you can really see and and man does it better than anyone because he's got the sort of modern sensibility but he doesn't ever lose the sweeping scope. Like, and I guess no. that's, the, that's the landscape too. But I remember people discussing Christopher Nolan's Prestige. And they were talking about, like, this mm-hmm. is a period film about magicians in 18th century London, or sorry, uh, not early 19th century London. And um, it's shot like any contemporary film. But that's the yeah. start, like, like very, a very deliberate style to kind of shoot this like a bit of a modern thriller and and use all of the tricks and tropes that doesn't do any of the scaling to scope and say hey this is this is the setting this is this is what makes it feel sweeping this has got that classical yep. look it kind of denies all of that and what's great about michael mann is that like he will especially because of the sort of claustrophobic nature of tackling those forests and things like that it does feel there's all those contemporary war elements. There's that militaristic understanding that he has of that authenticity of how to wield weapons. That's all his stuff. But the undeniable thing is that he pairs that with just gorgeous framing and beauty yeah. in a way that's just, it's, it's what other, I don't think other people who've tried to do that have realized that, no, you need, you need the romance, you need the deep romance to earn it like you to earn those bits that you want to do you need the romance you need the sweeping you know vistas you need like the the scale of watching an entire fort exiting somewhere in a valley to only be ambushed on both sides by crazy bands of war and huron with real actors real landscape yes you know as much as you know now being fully ensconced in the kind of you know movie making machine when you, whenever you're making a movie now, there's always like if you read in the script, you know, beautiful vistas and you know, gorgeous landscapes highlighting, you know, the expanse of of a of a location. In most cases, there is likely now going to be a visual effects component, whether it's to erase planes or yes. to take take out a, a building in the horizon or a drone shot or even just like power lines. Yes, you, there there is there is a need now because the world has gotten so small to digitally enhance those moments. Whereas, and this is something that I didn't notice until watching it again today or yesterday, is the, the, there is an amazing amount of very long, very wide pan shots along horizons that I feel has been lost in the cinema language of today. Yes. And maybe it's just because the, you know, the necessity of using CG, you know, to enhance a, a location. But there, you know, there's something very elegant about, and there's four or five moments in this film, including the final cliffside uh, confrontation where man, you know, who was inspired by Thomas Cole landscape paintings. Yes. By taking the idea of having very small humans in a very lo- like big, wide landscape and really using that 2351 frame to, to basically create living portraits yes. or living landscapes. And that's, that's just something that I don't see anymore. You know, even just a ve- like a, as something as simple as going from point A to point B and landing on someone or something, but at the same time creating uh, stakes or creating 
a, a landscape itself. Like, you know, not to jump forward too much, but, you know, one of the most amazing shots in that, that final 12 minutes is this beautiful, almost helicopter-like pan along this cliff and this huge vista, and then it ends on Magua's team, you know, walking up with Madeline Stowe and Alice and everybody and, you know, following their, uh, their trail. And just by doing that, man, and, we, and he does it a bunch of times before, but just by doing that in that moment, you know where the location is, how expansive it is, what the stakes are in terms of like, oh shit, someone's going to fall off that motherfucker. <laughs> and, how, and how small we truly are. You yes. know, there's something that's very important that man says, and I think it applies to the entire film, but particularly the ending moments, is that, you know, the frontier is a conflict between past and future. And that's the theme of the movie and how he's able to create that theme visually in a world that is not entirely in his comfort level. You know, like people talk all the time about, especially like in the 90s into into today, where, you know, there was a trend of bringing foreign directors to do um, Hollywood movies. And one, one of the conceits that I remember reading and I thought was, well, that's an interesting take, is that to bring directors who don't live in Americana and in that culture and allow them to present us with a version that might seem a little more objective, you yes. know, I, and there's something somewhat romantic about that in a way too, how they can, you know, romanticize certain things that maybe a, an American director wouldn't highlight. Well, here's an, an American director in the modern times who's almost been time warped back into <laughs> yes. the set, you know, the 1800s. And, and they'd said, you have everything at your disposal, go. Just capture these moments. And just by doing these these shots where it feels at times that he's almost saying, like, the world is getting smaller. Let me present you with the widest viewpoint I could possibly give you. Because if you know, you think about it with a two, three, five, one frame, and if you ever, if anyone listening to this ever gets a chance to watch this on the big screen, mm. you'll feel like you're watching an IMAX film. Because what he's doing is he's presenting to you 50% of this vista at the beginning of the shot and then sweeps across. It's almost like, you know, the panoramic uh, option <laughs> yeah. that you have on your phone. Yes. That's what he's doing in a way. You, and you, he's sitting there going like, ah, shit, I'm not, fi- I'm not uh, following the arrow. <laughs> too high, too low, shit. But, uh, just like doing that. The most stressful phone mode, just as oh an aside. Oh my god! How many times I've been on a set or just out, and I'm, and I can see like someone just looking at me like panorama mode, huh? And I'm like, yeah, shut up, just let let me get this, goddammit. The arrow is going too high, or I'm going too fast. But just, just by doing that, Blake, you know, you can tell that man is he's world building with your eyes. Yes, and and so much of the film predicates itself on building that world around these characters so that and and really if you think about it too you know by world building around these characters and creating what ultimately is a love story first using the backdrop of the French Indian War that's what ultimately creates the most evocative storyline for us because look i don't know if anyone's ever seen revolution or 1776 but Colonial movies can be fucking boring sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Well, like, or, or even you know, films of that era. I remember when uh, Bruce Beresford's um, Black Robe came yeah. out. I think the year before, and 
I won't lie to you, man. I remember seeing that on video because someone was saying like, oh man, it's fucking really violent and anything that I can go get at the video store that was really violent. I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> and I remember watching that movie and being completely like, and I, I was admiring the attention to detail. That's all great. But there was no story. Yeah. And, and in a way, it felt like what man did was he harnessed the need and the want for that kind of attention to detail so that the audience is completely enveloped in. It's not just something that looks good in a press release or the marketing materials like we went for pure authenticity. But just by having all of that feel as real as possible, the audience isn't looking for the seams. They're not looking for that one extra in the background who's got a Spuds McKenzie t-shirt on or <laughs> you know, like, there's, there's no one in the background or, or even like a detail like someone's car or even a plane going overhead. You forget it. Midway through that movie, by the time you get to that one battle in the, in the middle of the film, which should technically be the, the battle at the end of the film by all Hollywood. By all, by all rules. All the rules that you should actually be adhering to. Is broken. Everything broken. is broken with this film. And just by doing that, he makes you invest in those characters so that by the time you get to the moment when Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe are, are making out in what is arguably the best fucking make-out scene in cinema history, and, they, and, and it does another pan across the, the darkened horizon and ends on them, Yes, you don't care about anything in that world other than those two people and the people around them that are going to affect that dynamic, you know? And and it's so funny you brought up there's uh, to throw back to that wonderful exchange I got to have with the great man himself. Um, he talked about, you know, in North Carolina in 1992 or 1991 rather when they're shooting this movie, um, he could ask for the he had to ask for the flight pass to be changed. That was the last thing as far as authenticity um, to to get those vistas to get those things because mm-hmm. the landscape was uninterrupted. But when they were even when they were scouting, you know, they're in helicopters and things like that to scout this extremely dense North Carolina landscape. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, no, I did get the, cha- the planes changed in Mohicans. And he said the sort of funny throwaway line. He's like, I got the planes, uh, flight pass changed in Mohicans. He goes, but now I wouldn't care. I'd pay a thousand bucks and those contrails or whatever exactly. would be gone. Um, but there is something to be said when, you know that it's all like it's just one of those undeniable things it's all happening in the frame i had a weird and wonderful experience very recently to go and see two movies back to back which i think are just two completely different examples of um what movie making can be one of them i saw francis ford coppola's the final cut 4k at uh, oh you got to see it got to see it on the big screen it was beautiful I saw it with two one heat minute alums, Stu Coot and Garth Franklin, and we went and saw it. And literally several nights later, we were all together seeing Hobbs and Shaw. And we were like, and this is with all respect to those filmmakers, I was like, how does Hobbs and Shaw even call itself a movie when Apocalypse, a now, <laughs> when Apocalypse now exists? Because the Francis Ford Coppola's madness writ large on that screen with the multiple helicopters that are literally all in the frame. And we were like Mm -hmm. sitting next to each other, like going, this is all actually happening. It's now the dude that (laughs) is, is that is all actually happening. It's something that, you know, when, when you grow up in loving the movies, like we did in our age before the digital era, when part of the spectacle of going to the movies was that little voice in the back of your head that said many people and many things had to happen for this shot. Yes. 
like and for many example, people are doing something in this shot to yeah. make it feel how it feels. There are a hundred people. There are yes. eleven helicopters. They're all yep. bouncing and can, you know. And that's one thing I love about Mohicans. Every time I watch it, especially in those scenes at the fort, I'm there are guys digging in trenches. There are yeah. people pulling massive cannons up onto mounds and firing. Ru- even though it's rubber, they're rubber cannonballs. But even though they're fi- there yeah, are they projectiles. were basketballs, weren't they? Yeah, basketballs, <laughs> basketballs um, painted black. But they are firing projectiles and smashing real North Carolinian wood because they just chopped the forest down in the clearing and they built the fort out of the wood that was there. They built the cabins. They built everything. <laughs> everything. It's all there. <laughs> and that 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 level of artistry is something that I think producers and executives who are trying to save a buck all you know all kind of push by the wayside like don't worry we can do that in post or fix that in post but i mean look at the look at the success of once upon a time in hollywood knowing going in that tarantino went slavish with all those little details in the back of your head you're enjoying it more that it wasn't just some dude in crete who's creating these visual effects (laughs) and it's not tangible Yes. And there's an appreciation for that. And that's why, like, a movie like this, if this was made today, half of the film would likely be CG, you know. And, and I hate that, that that's true, but it is. Yeah. So, you know, a moment when you have the, you know, the infamous ambush that comes, you know, right before, right into the third act, there's, the, you know, first off, you have that one, that, uh, that, that one Huron, you know, uh, oh. tribesman runs out in oh. silence. And whacks the one dude. Oh my you know? god, that and that you is. Think that all hell is breaking loose, and it doesn't. But then there's that one crane shot where you just start to see, and all the guns are going off, and all the you know all the the the, the warriors are coming towards them, and the shot holds and holds and holds. You see Cora on the on the horse starting to go away. That kind of shot would likely have been mostly composited now, oh, but to note that that probably took. All day, just to get that one shot, you can't deny that kind of craftsmanship. No, you and, know, and it, it just it fully it it, it just it completely immerses you. And for people who are listening to this miniseries, um, Dante Spinotti, you have to listen to the Dante episode. But Dante even talks about, and you talk about, there are many people responsible. He's like, in that huge sequence, because they had all those people there and they were getting all those shots. He goes, there might have been five crews like there was the main unit there's obviously second unit third unit and there's just other folks running around grips and people shooting things just to make that all happen and then orchestrate and edit all of that into this cohesive form um he's like it was it was madness but but because we were creating all of this with all these people we just didn't want to waste any of the amazing shots that we could get with all of the sort of chaos that we were orchestrating so yeah, no, it's a that there, there's something undeniable too, Joe. This is the thing is like this is ninety two. Once you do Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring, it's like it's it's kind of the watershed moment because and as much like Jaws, you know, a lot of people sort of go, Oh, Jaws is when they created the blockbuster. It's like if you watch the first half of Jaws, that is a really deeply cynical new Hollywood movie about a mayor who a, a drama of a mayor who'd rather have his populace eaten then lose mm-hmm. any tourist dollars. And then it becomes a really swashbuckling action movie, right? Once they get on the Orca, once they're on the once boat, they're on the orca. It's, it's a summer blockbuster. It's a summer blockbuster. But there's a whole part of that that's not there. The The Fellowship of the Ring, as a, as a in, in that other example, is 
So much is tangible. So much is physical. So much is pure New Zealand. So much is that. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is there is a fusion with digital in, to, to a certain extent, but the movie is of a smaller scale And and uh, at that beginning. Once you hit Two Towers and you get into that, you know, which is what, what 2003, or sorry, yeah. 2002 rather, once you hit Two Towers and you've got the Battle of Helm's Deep and 90% of it is digital and you've just got these 10% corridors of real people that are doing the inserts and the close-ups and the close mm-hmm. neck-to-neck battle scenes. It's like, that's that's the moment where it pivots. It's like, you've got all this tangible and all this physical and all these real people that in the old movie-making days would just be this big Ben-Hur scale epic mm-hmm. style. And then you've got the digital fusion. And so many people were like, oh, yeah, well, we can just take that even further. And you're like, no. Exactly. Or, Peter, Peter. or they, they take it and they, they go, they regress with going, well, you know, like we, we understand that you couldn't have orcs. We just need regular dudes. So we can just take that same application, the same technology and apply it to something that should be more real. Yes. And yet there's an artificiality to it that no matter how exciting it is, it's still going to ring a little bit false to the audience. Like yes. as much as I love the MCU movies and I really enjoyed um, uh, Endgame, you know, that final battle, you're sitting there going, 90% of this is in the computer and it loses a little bit of the oomph. Now show some kid that and then show them either the, fi- you know, like the final battle in this or even like Braveheart and go, other than maybe some of the digital, you know, erasing of planes in the background, that's real dudes in there beating the fuck out of each other. <laughs> yes. And and you can't not go ooh ee ah where I didn't once go ooh ee ah when I was watching the the big fight at the end of the Avengers. I was going, oh man, that must have taken days to render. <laughs> that's, I, shouldn't be, I shouldn't be thinking that. I shouldn't be. And audiences, look. I wish that was on the poster. I wish that was on the poster. That should have taken days to render, Joe Lynch. That, that, yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it would help an Avengers Endgame at all if that, that poster uh, poll was on there. Um, I want to talk about something that I didn't know, and this kind of pertains to the final minutes of the movie. Um, you know, when I tweeted that yesterday, that I was watching the movie, which I want to do, um, I like doing that because it creates a dialogue and a conversation with other people. And mm. I would much rather that than talk fucking politics. So <laughs> if anyone wants to talk about Last of the Mohicans or chime in about it, that's that's what I love about expressing what I'm watching on, on Twitter or whatever. And, you know, immediately when I mentioned the third act, so many people talked about the score, the music, the score, the score. And, you know, you know like, again, like I said before, I was so blown away by Trevor Jones's and uh, Randy Edelman's sco- uh, score for that film that we immediately had to like pick up the CD and it became my homework soundtrack for at least a good year. <laughs> yes. So now, like, any shit, homework it, was exciting. Homework was oh, way more exciting for a whole well, no, year. No, now, now I hear it. I start to see algebra, <laughs> algebra, and social studies, you know, things like blasting in my head while I'm while I'm hearing the the mandolin. Um, but one thing that I never noticed until watching it again, and you know, back then we didn't have IMDb, but it was something that was on the uh, the Blu-ray that I, that made me go, "Holy shit!" As much as again, we keep talking about how man might have seemed on paper out of his element, 
and that he was still kind of making his movies the way he makes them. You know, one of the things that everyone knows Michael Mann for, especially in the 80s, was his deft use of needle drops and yes. practical, you know, practical tracks from artists instead of score, you know, yes. and Phil Collins in, in the Heat of the Night or whatever. Um, that's, you know, that's a prime example of there's someone who knows how to use pop music and juxtapose it with or or seamlessly integrate it with the scene and it feels fresh and it feels vital feels like it was made for it exactly i don't know who's calling but that's probably a telemarketer um <laughs> i didn't know that the song that the the music score that they use you know the the main score when you know the big siege on the cliff happens i didn't know that it was a a, a needle drop it's did you know that drop. yeah i I found it out yeah. in my research. It's yeah, it, the the Gale is the Gale, the, an the old Gale. Irish Celtic song from way back. And the story behind it is fascinating. How that his wife recommended to, that was, it was his wife. They they couldn't find the right track, and Michael Mann's wife was just happened to be listening to Irish folk songs or whatever, and went, "You should listen to this," and. And, and I thought maybe it was just inspiration. And then I immediately went on YouTube, listened to the song. I'm like, that's the fucking song. That's the song. It's so, the, the, the key melody is there. And, and what's amazing is he goes and dumps it to Trevor Jones and Randy Edelman. And he's just like, hey, this is the whole movie. Now arrange the goddamn living shit out of it. <laughs> like, I need, this, I need this track to be for the peak of love, the peak of sorrow, despondency i need it to be soaring i need it to be i need it to simmer i need every single thing you can give me at every single tempo and you just watch them and it's it is actually one of the most beautiful sort of um i, I don't know whether you'd call it like this like weird strange like x-ray or excavation or dissection it's like they literally do things to this track in ways that maintain its like dna but completely fuse it and change it and tweak it to do whatever is required of what's happening on screen. It's crazy. What I, what I noticed this time was that, especially when you watch the whole film again and you start to hear Trevor and Randy's various themes, you know, um, uh, Nathaniel has a theme. I mean, Hawkeye has a theme and the, the women have a theme and the British have a theme and the French have a theme and Magua has a theme. And all of these themes are, basically scoring these variant subplots that are all going to come together on that cliff. Yes. And when you listen to, again, right in that moment that I talked about before, when you have the camera sweeping over the landscape and landing on Magua's crew, every cue for the entire film converges. Yes. It's almost, it's, it's like a perfect song where you have different melodies and then when they converge on the last bit, right, right after the second chorus, you go, this all fits. It fits perfectly. And I mean, thematically, you can't do better than that, where yeah. you can have everyone's themes all fit as if they were separated. And now this is the full yeah, true. It's like, it's like a weird multi-track. Song. It's like a weird multi-track thing in your brain. It's like, here, we're going to turn this track, this part of the track on, it goes, and it'll just have that tempo. And then it's like, let's put that next track and then next track. And then as soon as that blast, that horn blast, beautiful yeah. wind instrument, part of the orchestra all go, and do that big pan. 
and in, in Dante Spinotti is not intimidated by the panorama on his phone. I'm guessing. No, Just, Dante gives, <laughs> not at all. Dante is fucking fearless, right? That pan when it whips across and that blast of the horns, and then we see Uncas again. It's just like. Oh, here we go. Oh, this is ev- this getting, is everything. I'm getting chills. I'm getting fucking chills just thinking <laughs> about it. But but that's what you need though. Like for for a story that is trying to envelop you in all these different characters. I mean, Uncas is as secondary as you would think, and even you know even his father, uh, played by Russell Means. I mean, they seem like they would be secondary characters in this film and even in the first two acts. Because really, you're worried about Hawkeye and Korra. You know, like that, that's really, that's the heart of the movie. What you don't realize is that by that, you know, that, that ending mark, when, when Uncas is running up the cliff and he's going to find his, his, you know, his, I mean, real true love with Alice, that's the moment where the shift in the movie focuses more on the Mohican family and the Mohican tribe and how that's really, they are the heroes of this. And yes. like, if anything, Hawkeye is, becomes secondary to that. And isn't, it just, one of the, isn't it one of the most beautiful storytelling bait and switches? Like, I had no clue. No one did. No, no I, one saw I, that I, can't even, I can't even imagine. Like, you know, when people talk about it, we all go back and we all go, oh, Chingachikook you know, Russell means he's the, the biggest and greatest badass. And, and, and in examining this with the level of scrutiny that I have want to do in these projects, I've watched that ending scene like on a loop, like over and over and over and over. And I'm just trying to remember, like, firstly, you get just, I mean, Steve Waddington playing Major Duncan Haywood, number one. What a fucking, so thank, good. What a fucking thankless role on paper. But yep. God, when you read that last note, that last beat, as a person who's like going for that movie, he would have gone, I fucking can't wait to do this movie. And he just, he crushes the movie. Like that, that switch to like sac- be self-sacrificial and, and, to, and to join Hawkeye and Korra is so powerful. That's what really gets me uh, in that the moment. Look, the look that the he look. gives. Oh. When, especially when, when, when Hawkeye says, did you tell did him? Did you tell him? And and he goes yes I did. And okay, this is the, re- oh this my is the, god this is the inside this is the inside have... baseball bit of you and me. Oh, it's ooh. like I I love I love that he's like did you tell him I've always thought there's a there's a passing look and I know you're gonna go back and look at it because I know you <laughs> but there's a passing look I know that the I feel like Sashem knows how to speak English but he speaks French oh. better. So when I see that moment. There's a look that the Sashem says, and he looks at Duncan, and he looks at Hawkeye, and then he just... Like, he knew. He's like, I know what's just, hap- I know what's just yeah. happened here. And every time I, I watch it, that's oh, my little, man. like, I, I feel like he knows how to speak English, because if he knows how to speak French, I'm sure that he knows how to speak English. And I just mm-hmm. looked at him, and I'm like, yep, he knows. And so that's, that's even more of his mercy in that moment to go, I know what he's doing. Yeah, I, I got to say between this movie and Hunt for Red October, there, it's a very difficult trick in trying to create a, a dialogue between languages and having a translator in the middle of it. Yes. Right? You know, Hunt for Red October did it really well. But if you listen to the soundscape and you listen, especially if you have headphones, if you get a chance to watch this again, which I know all of you will, <laughs> that translator scene is so technically complex you have two running dialogues going on and you have Duncan underneath it translating for both. 
and realizing <laughs> at the same time that he's translating for both, but he's also translating his own death sentence. Yes. It's heartbreaking, and yet he's, he can, can completely keeps himself poised and composed, and he's still professional and regal. And it's heartbreaking to see how who is normally a foil in, in the, the construct of the love story. You know, he's yes. the other guy. He's, he's the Bill Pullman of, of the story. <laughs> if you know. And, oh, and yet the honor that he elicits at that, you know, in the end when he sacrifices himself. And it's interesting too, watching it back. I think other movies might have lamented him or at mm. least, you know, held on his process more but it's at that moment, and, and that's really when the score kicks in, when he makes that decision, and he, you know, his body, yeah, you know, you he, cut, his you, decision you cut is the trigger. His decision is the trigger to the ending, that, and that, yeah. which is why I sort of it doesn't. So that's why that this show considers this ending, this last twelve minutes, is it encompasses part of that decision and it encompasses the shift because it's so critically important in that moment, the hero moment, the confrontation for Hawkeye and Magua. Um, and and for Duncan in chorus with Hawkeye in that moment for Cora's life is mm-hmm. it, it is the foundational moment of that because so many things happen in like 40 seconds. He's self-sacrificial. Yeah. We're also hearing... And, and then he's immediately put... He's put to, he's put to the flames immediately. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no, there's no dragging out the stop, stop. I mean, in, you're in not a going way, man, smart in knowing... You're not going to Albany yeah. to get hung. You are just literally mounted on a pike and you're up there. And, that, and you are up there. <laughs> and, you know, it, it makes me think about the, the, the construct of what a hero's journey is in these last 12 minutes because think about it. Does Daniel Day-Lewis get a hero moment in those 12 minutes? Nope. Nope. Duncan does. Uncas does. Uh, I, I'm going to screw up Russell's name. Is it Chingachukun. Yeah, you say it much better than I do. Chinga, uh, uh, we'll call him whatever. He gets a hero moment. Even in a way, I hate to say it, West Studio gets a human moment. Yeah. But every everyone who is considered the peripheral characters on the press release for this movie become the heroes in the film. I think that, you know, if there was a hero moment for Hawkeye, it would be that he shoots Duncan in that moment, you know, like that's just the, out that's of mercy. The, yeah, it's mercy. That's the hero moment for him. That's that. But, that is but, but the think whole, about it. If, try if you're to making the movie, that movie, if you're making the movie about the great American hero and really 10 minutes before the movie ends, he gets the hero moment and his dad and then he's di- and then he's out. He's like out. he's just in the background going, "Stop! No, Uncas, that's it." <laughs> Everybody else who's yeah. been supporting Hawkeye's quest and supporting Korra's love are all the reason why they are t- they are together at the end. Yes, you know it, it's it's so important that I would almost say that this film is more of an ensemble than people think because of that that final twelve minutes. And, and you don't realize it until it happens. It's, almost, it's like if you were watching Ocean's Eleven and then it's, you think it's a Brad Pitt and, Matt and uh, um, George Clooney movie. And then they save all of those great character moments for all the other nine guys for the last 12 minutes. You know, they all get their comeuppance moments. Yeah. That the, doesn't happen. It, it doesn't happen. And the, the one thing that I would say is this movie has been reframed totally for me just watching, you know, maybe it's because of how many times I've watched him and I just thoroughly adore him in heat. But like 
is this not the whole movie, the tragedy of Magua? Like we talked yeah. early in our conversation about Michael Mann's intent and about that beautiful contrast between this is where the the the, the past, you know, the past transitioning into the future. This is where it's happening on the frontier. Like that's the journey. And so Magua's this tragic guy whose entire family gets murdered as part of this English progress of colonializing this continent, and he's going on a revenge journey. In any other movie, he's like he's like a he's a hero. Like he's like a, a vengeful hero, if you like, go mm-hmm. and take out the guy who killed his family or ruined his family or whatever or cause him to be enslaved and he's so intent he's so intent to like do things that are going to help the huron progress and try and adopt yep. these other things to stay alive and, and to survive and not be extinct because i think he sees the writing on the wall better than anyone else and when he's in this judgment and and the judgment's passed down it's devastating because he's like he he now has been in an attempt to save his tribe for the progress and the devastating sort of real reality of the situation, he's then cast out and he does this wonderful thing, which I want to underscore for people in a few episodes of this show. So you can go back and look at it. He doesn't curse out the chief in Huron. He curses him out in French. Yeah, I know (laughs) that that was what a great choice that was. I mean, what a a choice choice because it's like, I'm not even going to talk to you in your own language or in our own language. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to fucking curse you out in French because the, our time is oh, done. For, for le français, I love how everyone refers to his. Oh, watch out for the le français. <laughs> uh, you know, and you bring up a really good point too, because you know, Magua. They always say, you know, the, your your movie is only as good as your villain, yes. right? And the best villains are the ones that can justify their intentions, and I, that's why I feel like West Duty became a star at the by the end of that movie. And it's all because of his hand. Mm-hmm. That, that emotes way more humanity than you would ever expect. And I'll get to that. But, you know, he, he's truly one of the best antagonists because it doesn't take much for the audience to flip their point of view a little bit and understand his plight and his people's plight. And if this was any other movie, he would be the Charles Bronson in this death wish. Yes. You know what I mean? Like he, it's, it's unfortunate that in a Western world that you wouldn't be able to make that switch as a kind of star vehicle. I mean, considering that he made, Oh God, what was it? The movie he did like two after this, um, that I think Walter Hill directed. That was Geronimo. Geronimo. That's right. I mean, even still they had to put a bunch of white guys in there to kind of fill out the, you know, fill out the cast list. But I think that, Magua's character is the most empathetic and complex of everybody in the entire film. Deeply. You know, because man gets to play with the deeply rooted politics and the class struggle that you might not expect going in because everyone's going in to see Daniel Day Lewis's abs and the love story. <laughs> you know, he gets to have uh, a relatable antagonist that by the end of the movie, you can't not, at least, especially when he's, you know, presenting himself to the chief, or even there's that beautiful moment where the camera pushes in after he's just been attacked by Russell Means. You know, you can't not feel empathy for him. And what better way to really throw the audience into the fray than to have them go, eh, I kind of side with Mago on this one. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't happen often, but no. by having someone who can create a character that can be all 
utterly terrifying. When he has that black makeup on during the ambush, oh. you can't get a scarier foe. And, and, and also because they do this wonderful, there's so, something so deeply wonderful about that shot, which is when it sneaks into the bush and they're just pulsating along. Like he's the head of like a snake and the scales mm-hmm. are like what feels like 10,000 guys that are just like following him so deathly silently in those woods. It's so scary. And then when he stops and pauses and you're like, Oh shit. Oh shit. shit. Yep. This is going to go. But then, to, but then when we get to the, you know, one of the most heartbreaking moments in cinema, when after Uncas is thrown off, which I got to say, God damn it. That uh, who, who's the actor is Eric Schwieg, right? Eric Schwieg, yeah. Who plays, who, who is, again, you don't expect him to be much in the movie. And then he's got that step slow-mo process moment in the waterfall with, uh, with Alice and you fall in love with him immediately and you know the stakes, but his like re- revenge mode, Ugh. like, like action moment when he is truly like on full tilt boogie to, to save his love. <laughs> and, and he's given, you know, a, a really a, a very honorable, moderated fight. One thing that I, I, I noticed in this that, you know, I don't think you get away with a lot anymore is, you know, fight scenes in movies have to be so fast and, and fast and furious, so to speak. You know, everything's moving very quickly. And the thing that I really enjoy about watching, especially the last uh, two or three fights in this, is that the, you know, the fight between Uncas and Magua, it's a very moderated fight. They, you know, and there's a lot of pauses in it because there is a respect between two human beings, two warriors. Yes. And that is, that is a respect that unfortunately has gone away thanks to the industrial age, to the advent of muskets and rifles and, and now you know, fully automatic weapons. The fact that you can have two people who have different different opinions who can converge, whether it's with fists or knives, and there is a mutual spirit animal-like respect between these two human beings that they can step back and reflect on, oh shit, you just stabbed me three times. You know, like <laughs> yes. and even giving what would be considered an honorable death, too. You know, the way that 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 Magua you know kills Uncas. Yes, he's an adversary. Yes, he's standing in in Magua's way. But I feel watching that, it could have been way more brutal or even more like sinister. He, he and ta- it wasn't. He takes like so. This is the the wonderful contrast of this movie, and I think that why everyone gets that human and hero moment that you just underscored is you watch Magua cut a guy's heart out, and he he is take that that is him at his most brutal. And that is him at his most savage, you know, and and, and and like, and he's executing that savagery to make a point. It's not like he wants to do it. He's making a, he's claiming the most sort of overt point that he can. But mm-hmm. in that Uncas scene, he's like a he's like a robot. He's yeah. such a good killer. Like he's so good at killing. He's the Terminator. Yeah, he's that's Magua at Terminator, and he just does it. And what's so powerful about Wes Studi's performance and just why he's a criminally underrated actor. I mean, he literally acts the shit out of Daniel Day-Lewis and yep. Daniel Day-Lewis is 
arguably the greatest actor working. <laughs> so, and, he, and he steals the movie from him. And he steals him. the whole movie, just takes it away from him. And if he hadn't already stolen the whole movie from him up until this point, the last 10 minutes yep. he completely steals it from him. But there's that moment where he's cutting him and he looks down. And again, this is the both the glory and the pain of having beautiful high-definition transfers now and, and watching something so crisp. You see the blood spatter on his face during the execution. Oh, I know. It was brutal. And he he's disgusted. He's like, why am I... like?" There's no satisfaction. He's not. There's no bloodlust. No. There's no. He's just doing it as an autopilot, and he just goes, "Oh, what? What?" And he 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 pushes him away. He's like, "I've, I'm done. Like, I don't need to do this." And then that body sliding down the mountain, like and so he, lifeless. Oh. There's no. There's it. You know. You even the moment where, and it's a very shaky shot that seems like they might have just kind of captured it in the moment when you have the body that almost looks like it's floating down yes you know it, it looks like something that was just kind of spur the moment Th- there's there's an lifelessness to whatever the whatever dummy they used that if they had used a stuntman in that moment where it's like oh yeah i i, I feel like it would have just been lost there, no. there's something that's heartbreaking about that so when you have uh jody may who plays alice who again if you think about the the time spent between uncas and alice is probably three minutes. Yeah. Yet that moment under the waterfall speaks volumes. Yes. And when you know when she notices what's happening and realizes that her her love is gone, I could see, I can hear an executive go, "Well, you know that really wasn't that well defined. So you know maybe <laughs> you know maybe we can like add a couple scenes and you know in the second act that can strengthen that." Doesn't matter. There is such a heartbreaking sadness in her face. So much so that there's fucking gifts for it. Like when I, when I did that, <laughs> there were just gifts of her face in that look. Jodie May, over what a cliff. and what a what a powerhouse! And like, literally has to earn her whole part in the movie in four seconds of glorious yes. close up. Like she's she, not given anything else other than like, oh, we're we're understanding that in the throes of battle, she has to grow up very quick. You know what? That's that's Madeline Stowe's arc too. Yeah. So she's already got that handled. But to have that kind of loss, and it's the kind of loss that you were all hoping and praying doesn't happen to Hawkeye and Korra. So it's almost an example of this could happen to our A story, and this would be the most devastating thing ever. By taking all our B romance and shredding it apart, it not only creates you know pure empathy for the audience with these characters, but gives man the ability to create humanity in Magua. Yes. Because that that moment where it's 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 really it's like the 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 switch between Terminator and Terminator Two, where <laughs> yeah. you you are it's you are great. so focused, on, but you're so focused on this machine and a machine that has a, a a real salient reason to be doing what he's doing, even if it considers you know brutal violence. The fact that look that West Studi gives her, realizing that she's going to commit suicide. And how his eyes lower and his head tilts and his hand comes up and just gives a little whoop, whoop, just just like a, a quick little <laughs> come back. And the fact that there's her lover's blood on uh, that. I hand. thank you so much for talking about that because I think in the gif culture that we live in, there's a gif. And I don't know if it's just cropped effectively. It's like half of his hand is always seemingly covered in the gifs. 
and yeah. when you see it in don't, beautiful you don't true get form, the blood. You, and I'm like, you don't oh. get it in the true two. There needs to be more two three five one <laughs> gifts out there. I guess in the two three five one gift uh, department on Twitter, you can see the blood on his hands, and and I, that's that's the perfect literal and metaphorical Michael Mann thing totem yep. in that moment of like she ha- is she's stuck between death or the hard the hard fact of the negotiation that the guy who she would be with who would protect her also has the blood of her lover on his hands and also has this terminator kind of quality in him and also you know he may have satiated some of that some of that craziness and some of that desire and be forging out onto to this new pathway and maybe there's mm-hmm. an opportunity that there could be some other bit but ultimately she's a woman who like arguably two months ago is tottering around in London at court, you know, waving a, a little a fan and, and, and being courted <laughs> by dudes in there. And she's just been thrust into the French Indian war. Like I don't blame Alice for looking helpless because guess what? I'd be fucking Alice in this whole she movie. Was, she was literally between a rock and a, and a hard place. <laughs> yes. And it's, and, and you know, like suicide is a tricky thing to portray in cinema Insane. and create something that can be, justifiable to the audience and even romantic and that's where i think you know man excels in by having this is so weird okay if he had framed it where cora falling in that lower angle didn't have west studi's hand in the shot Mm. i think some of the some of the impact no pun of her falling and the acceptance of it would be diminished because there's and and I would love to have been a fly on the wall, you know, setting up the shot and knowing that okay, Wes, your hand is going to be in the shot. What is your hand going to do when when you realize that she's accepted her fate? And there's something about when the second that she starts to fall, his hand falls a little bit. It doesn't fall all the way, but it falls just a little bit. And you know, contrast that with the moment when um, Luke Skywalker falls, you know, in Bespin. Like yeah, down that whole investment and Darth Vader extends his hand and it's almost the same kind of beat. There is a sadness to that gesticulation. Yes. That is so – that's the moment to me that Wes Studi became a movie star. Yeah. Because he could emote with his fucking hand. <laughs> yes. And create something that is not going to deter you from you know a, a, an overly sentimental or schmaltzy moment like, oh, well, that girl died. Let's keep on moving. Or I feel bad, but what are you going to do? There's such a complexity to that emotional beat that is so hard to create otherwise in any other construct so that makes, makes that moment sing and it never feels false. You be, like... You can't talk to anybody and say, well, yeah, she made a mistake. You know, like, no, that's the mo- most romantic gesture you could possibly give to your lover. And I, and I also, I, I, I remember, weirdly enough, I thought, having seen this movie 20 or 30 times at this point, I thought I remembered seeing a closer shot of both of their bodies down in the ravine. Same. But I don't know why. It was. It's almost psychosomatic, where the the movie is making you think that you saw you see them something that was yeah. Because you know what, every other filmmaker probably would have done that. Yes, where it would have been a closer medium shot of both of their bodies twisted and broken, but their hands are barely touching or whatever. <laughs> you know what? The the fact that man almost gives you the point of view as if you were someone up there with them looking over, and you just see her white all, dress. That's all you say. That's all you need that's in all you the palette that they've created. 
the only thing that you need to see as like almost a, a visual anchor is where her body is knowing that they that they are together. That's all that matters. You don't need a schmaltzy moment of anything no. closer. It's just that. And But the, what makes that scene more powerful is that the person that was the antagonist to this, you, you feel bad for him too. You feel bad that he couldn't save her yeah. because he could have. And yet... Love, love conquers all, and unfortunately, love also means death. So, yeah, man. Like, and then after that, there is just, and it's interesting too to see how man keeps most of that scene in real time, yet gives Russell Means the moment of slow mo when yeah. Lucas the most peck, off, the most like, peck and par moment in this movie. Oh, Russell, 100%. Russell, Russell Means. Russell Means, who is so laconic, and I, I love... There's two things that man does here in slow-mo reaction shots to death. And for the Uncas shot, he gives Chingachagook, who barely says a word through the entire film, that slow-mo scream, and, we, and we're, denied, oh. we're denied hearing it. He intentionally yep. denies the audience the, I don't know, satisfaction or whatever, or, or gives, keeps him the dignity so he, we don't hear his like guttural like freak-out cry. And then when Cora sees Alice, we only hear like a whisper. It's almost yeah. like there's like a dog whistle kind of. Uh, and Very I'm not different. saying that it's, it's so different because it's like we only capture the most heart wrenching frequency of her devastation just for that split second. Like, ah! like it doesn't even feel like it's real. And and then we get that punctuate like so that sort of like um, paced into the scene. And so then when Chingachagook's like tearing up after to, to, that to happen. So we know he's in tireless pursuit. And then, and we know that Hawkeye's like streaming up the hill. It, it, it's that wonderful like levels of anticipation. You're like, well, we know that this action, this emotion, we're really heightened, we're, we're invested. But as soon as those th- two things, and when she, you know, um, Madeline Stowe's character gets to do that for Alice, you know, Corey gets to react to Alice, then we're on that charge and then the music changes tones again it's like almost to your point the orchestra shifts it goes like it's like it takes away a couple of those key higher end tracks those tragic notes and it just all becomes this big like when it becomes a john woo movie for 30 seconds (laughs) when you have fucking daniel day lewis with two fucking rifles (laughs) shooting two dudes the only thing that was missing were some like midi like a colonial era paper flying in the background (laughs) and a couple doves so you know like you know, you bring up a really good point about the the slow mo. What's interesting is that you have our three main characters. You have uh, Russell Means' character, you have Cora, and you have Hawkeye. And the two characters that are directly related to the dead, you know, yes. um, you know Russell's son and Cora's sister, they are given the same almost wordless slow mo, uh, you know, reactions. Whereas Daniel Day Lewis's character with Hawkeye. He gets real time, and he's the only one who says anything in practically the entire sequence. Yeah, he screams out brother. He screams out brother in Mohican. Yeah, I thought it was like, doesn't he go like Uncas or something like that? No, he doesn't say Uncas. This is the thing. This is the uh, this is the real nerdy part. Is I was trying to figure out what the hell he said for the longest time because he says Nakans. 
And if you go oh. back to the very beginning of the movie, when Russell Means is saying that sort of beautiful prayer over the, the, the stag that they kill, he yeah. says, you know, thank you so much, you know, uh, and, and I think um, uh, the final word that he says in that exchange and under the, the subtitles, it says, brother, and it's Nakans. So he's run when, oh, when, shit. so when Hawkeye runs around the corner, he goes, Nakans, like brother, ah, dude. Again, I've seen this movie 30 fucking times, <laughs> and I'm still discovering new things just like that. I, I swear I always thought it was Uncas. But what's funny, too, is – and I want to get to the sound design before we wrap up. Um, the way that that is in the soundtrack, it sounds distant. It almost mm. sounds peripheral. It sounds like a throwaway moment yes. because you know, as much as obviously Hawkeye and Uncas have had a relationship together, they're not blood. And that, that shift – that moment, in a way, is man saying, Hawkeye's taken a step back. He's now become secondary. He's now the objective observer. And now letting the native people, you know, whether it's the, you know, of the English descent or of the Mohican descent, we're bringing them first and foremost to the forefront because it's really, it's their battle more yes. than anything else. Yes. And, and I think that it was such an important choice that... I don't think would happen in other movies with other directors because they'd be like, well, who's the, who's the dude on the poster? You could see an executive going, <laughs> huh? That's, that's the guy we should be focusing on. You could do a hundred sketches about Michael Mann movies getting studio notes and him just rejecting them. You just need someone really laconic and just like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> it's just like, so the guy on the poster, he should, you know, be in the big battle at the end. No. Not no, doing no, it. we don't. We don't need him at all. Um, I will mention really quick that the the thing that you talked about previously about um, saying the prayer in front of the uh, the elk or whatever. Yeah. You know, that's another classic man trope is the idea, the theme of the honorable death. Yes. And that's something that obviously carries on with pretty much every major death that happens in this film. You know, all the way back from the animal that they kill to the final moments between uh, you know Russell Means and, and Wes Studi. That pivotal shot with the vista in the background, and it's a wide profile two shot between these two men, these two tribes. These two mountains. Exactly. Coming, converging together. That, that again, in, an, in a more modern action or maybe you know, an action film set in today's world, that moment would never happen. No. Nah. Or it would happen and the audience would go bullshit. You know, it would feel hammy and staged where nothing, like I was saying before with, you know, with Uncas's fight, nothing feels staged because, and, or, or theatrical because here are two characters who have respect for one another. You know, it's not the ruthlessness that, that we're so used to in storytelling of the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. This is storytelling from, a, a much more respectful, humanistic place. And that's what makes it both visually stunning to watch because you're like, oh my God, these two, these are the true heroes or villains of the story. And this, what, this is what we've been building to. It's in the fucking title, people. <laughs> it's, not, it's not Hawkeye's tale. It's The Last of the Mohicans. I remember when this movie came out and everyone thought, you know, like, 
that's who they were referring to was Daniel Day-Lewis's character. It's like, no, they even say it at the very end of the movie. It's the, he says it's, it himself. it's so hilarious. It's the great, um, Matt Zolzeit's a wonderful writer and, uh, and editor of RogerEbert.com. Matt's so wonderful. But Matt's like, Blake, my, I've got a theory that whoever says the title of the movie is who the movie's about. Now, whether you prescribe to that, uh, at all in Michael Mann movies, I actually think it works because you know, you know, Robert De Niro says the you know the heat coming around the corner, the heat coming around the corner, the heat coming around mm-hmm. the corner. So you know, it is it is essentially a Neil Macaulay you know focus in 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 some strange way. Um, but in this movie, you know, Chingachgook, like the once you've seen it, you realize oh, it is him. It's him trying to like it's it's them trying to pass through so that they can set up roots and you know, and bloom as a people, as a family. Mm-hmm. And and so this digression, <laughs> which it is, right? They ultimately take a you know, cheeky little digression along the frontier to the, through the French-Indian War. Um, <laughs> you know, it, 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 and that's what they do. But once once they do that, and, and there's an exchange that we didn't get a chance to chat about, but I think it's so important to that final scene is when Uncas grabs his dad's shoulder... And, he, and he's not looking in his eyes, but he's just touching his shoulder. And Chigachukuk looks up, and he looks up into his eyes, and he, he follows his eyes then over to where he's looking, which is to where Alice and Margot's guys are exiting camp. And yeah. then he's sort of like, there's a something that passes there that as a parent he has to go, I'm letting go. Yeah. And he it's, lets, it, and, it, it's so affecting, and it is it's tantamount to man's thesis of as much as it's great to hear this this beautiful period era dialogue and you know to to feel that authenticity come out of people's mouths it's way more important to create a dynamic of looks between these people because mm-hmm. that's how we realize that that's how um you know the the family of of brothers and father speak to one another when they hunt that's the um that's really the moment when Cora falls in love with Hawkeye and says, I want you with her eyes. That's the moment. Don't we all wish that people could look at you the way Madeline Stowe looks at Hawkeye? Like if you've ever been looked at like that, damn it. Hot damn. Yeah. I I can, I can (laughs) say that my wife gave me that look once and, and we're forever together. Um, (laughs) it's true. It's very true. That is a very specific look that she gives and it's fucking steamy as hell. I love it. But you know, like when, uh, Duncan and, uh, and Hawkeye have, um, have that look, Every significant dramatic moment in the film, I mean, obviously be- between uh, Chinakut, I uh, see, I can't say it right. See, Chinkachakut, you're much better at it than I. But between those two uh, moments or those two characters, and they have a look. You know, these looks are as important as any big set piece, explosion, squib that goes off. It's the mo- like you can tell, man saw those moments as being the big trailer moments, so to speak, yes. you know, like those are the moments that you have to harness and, and pray that the audience connects to. The final thing I want to say is I've just heard in this project, and I hadn't heard before it. This is where you really like, you know, for, for people getting frustrated with the Oscars, this is where I really like them this year. An honorary Oscar winner is none other than Mr. West duty. This year? This year. No way! Way. I had no fucking clue. I had no clue either. I've only just heard about it. I was having a tangential conversation with 
um, uh, 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 like a, uh, one of the, our Australian Universal Studio execs, Mike Bard, um, a friend of One Heat Minute who was, was on the show and we're having a chat. And uh, he, he made me aware of it. And I just, so now what's going to be wonderful is talking about Last of the Mohicans Forever and talking about the fact that Academy Award winner Daniel Day-Lewis starred alongside Academy Award winner Wes Studi. Like, and you know what? They, when they hand it to him, they should say, this should be for Last of the Mohicans. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. like, been, we, we, we held off. Look, we found look, this one look. in the back. It was yours all the time. Sorry, sorry. I don't know who the hell got this, but this had your name on it. I just had a crazy fucking thought. Okay. Uh, we've been talking about Last of the Mohicans. We've been talking about Heat, obviously. I never made the connection that Michael Mann cast two of the scariest antagonists of 90s movies <laughs> as good cops. Yeah. Between, between Ted Levine being Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, who is iconically terrifying, and Wes Studi as Magua being incredibly terrifying <laughs> and having them in these, in these roles that, you know, like for all intents and purposes are secondary roles to our main conflict in Heat. See, it always comes back to Heat, Blake. It always does. Um, but the <laughs> I'm fact so that, happy like, it does. I remember, I remember how, like when I remember watching Heat and the first time Wes Studi shows up, you're like, oh shit, he's probably going to turn bad. Like there was something <laughs> intrinsically like embedded in my brain to think that and you're like, probably a bad guy. And you're like, probably a bad guy. And you're like, as soon as you see Bosco, you're like, I'm sure he's wearing women's underwear. Like I'm just a hundred percent sure. <laughs> yeah, right? Like you know, there's something amiss and he probably, you know, sings wild horses, you know, in the car on, on, on the stakeout or something. But you know, West studio, you know, there's not a lot of meat to chew on in heat, but He's fantastic in that movie, and he's completely sympathetic and knows how to fucking open a shotgun, like a door with a shotgun, like oh, nobody's business. Like nobody's like, business. Fucking badass. But, you know, Wes Studi has become this very uh, – Studi, Studi has become sturdy yes. as a fantastic character actor that you know is going to bring a grounded gravitas to whatever, if whether he's playing the good guy, the bad guy, or someone in between. He's just got confidence, Joe, right? He's still. He can be still, and you're completely intrigued. Like, he doesn't have to be doing fucking anything, and he's just there. Last movie I saw him in was Hostiles, Christian Bale. Um, oh, he's... That movie. So good. And, um, you know, I've, we talked about Geronimo before. Um, he's been in, uh, I mean, a, a slew of movies. But, um, you know, uh, whenever I think about him, when it it's it's like you know how good a character is when they transcend the actor like in a way and that's how mm -hmm. good the performance is it's like for many years when i saw west city i'm like fuck it's magua like it's just yep. like that's how like, can you how can you not i mean it's you know like, it, it, that's worked, who it, is. it worked it worked against him in the movie uh steven summer's deep rising did you ever, did you ever see that movie with uh, treat williams yes yes, oh, yes yes dude okay all right if you didn't you need to like stop this podcast now because <laughs> i guarantee you'll be doing you know one deep minute very quickly <laughs> it's, it's such a great movie that people are starting that's my to deep realize. impact podcast yeah <laughs> It's, it's happening no no you know you should do a deep rising and deep impact podcast <laughs> together that would be per just call it deep um but west duty is uh he, he plays the heavy in that movie but what's great is that he's hilarious in it because he knows that you know that you know him from as Magua. Yes. And there's little subversive touches that he adds to it. And I'm I, like, spoiler alert, he dies horribly in the movie. Uh, but the, the way he dies and how he dies, it almost feels like you can see him looking at the audience going, 
you wanted this in all those other movies, right? Well, <laughs> I'm giving you the best West Duty death you could possibly imagine. But he's just one of those actors who it's enjoyable to watch him take whatever role he is. Yes. He's in. And, and, you know, I think it was really smart of anybody who cast him after Last of the Mohicans to not just lean on like, oh, well, you know, he's of Indian descent. We might as well put him in every Indian film that we or Native American film that we have in our pipeline. Yes. Geronimo obviously is one. But, you know, I remember him in Street Fighter, you know, seeing him in Heat and in a role that you wouldn't expect him to. You know, Deep Rising as well. Fucking Mystery Men. You remember him in Mystery yes. Men as yes. Sphinx? <laughs> he's just he's so reliable, but I, I, I don't think he'll ever come to... God, that's one I haven't watched in a while. Mystery Men is fun, I, man. He's Mystery so, Men is a lot and he's a fun, lot and, and he's fun in it. He's so fun yeah. in it. But he also, he knows that you know him as the heavy in most of these movies and plays off of that, you yes. know? Um, I remember him in this... Uh, Walter Hill movie Undisputed that was with uh, God Ving Rhames and uh, Wesley Snipes. He's fucking great in that. He's just one of those actors that you know has been reliable to all of us as audience members. But it all started on that cliff. I I truly believe mm. that that I don't think he would have. I don't think he'd be getting that Oscar this year, Blake, if he didn't have that moment when he calls Alice back. Oh, I truly man. believe that. I I I think in a modern in a modern in a modern time, it's so funny when you go back and go. That's the you know the fun of punditry with the Oscars as film geeks is you go back a few years later because you think about what what really is zeitgeisty and then you, you see what endures. And I'm just like, there's no performance in 1992 as a supporting actor that's better than Magua. It's just not. Nope. Nope. Like, there's a lot of good performances around that time, but I'm like, there's none as good as Magua. I'll 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 put West Studi against almost anyone. Um, and, and any I'll sub- put West Studi against anybody this year. Yes, I agree. Let's go back. <laughs> Let's just submit it. I'm sorry. You guys got it wrong. You're going to need to assess West Studi's supporting performance against everyone no, else No, no. What year. we need to do, Blake, is we need to totally Kanye West the, the next year's Oscars <laughs> and be like, hold up, hold up. I respect you. You're great. But we should just bring out West Studi now. I know he's waiting. He's got another hour before his honorary Oscar comes out. Let's just give it to him now. Let's just let's let's make amends for tw- thirty almost thirty years of, of fuck ups. Let's let's just make this right right now. Come on out, Wes. And you just you just see Joe Lynch as a as a Oscar host scratching the name of whosoever name was Yo, on the Oscar. I'll soy bomb the shit out of that stage just to make sure that oh. West Studi gets. The Oscar he so well deserved. Oh, so well deserved. So well deserved. Oh, my goodness. Um, so we've talked about sound in this movie. We've talked about Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones absolutely cutting up and um, cutting to pieces the gale. But I know that we talked about sound designs. I'm going to just lead you in because who would have thought that, like, musket flashes could almost take over symbols who would have thought that like yeah. <laughs> like that guns dropping can be part of the percussion who could have thought of like the pitter patter feet charging up rocks could also just be Im- immersed into all of the orchestral notes that are hitting in this final you know in this final scenario it's just yeah the, the marriage between sound and the music here is mwah, chef's kiss but it's it's also it's very experimental and I think if you if you've seen enough Michael Mann movies up to that point you know that he has he let, he has a lot of credence towards the sound design like you hear it from so many filmmakers and and artisans in this business how 
you know, sound is almost half of your movie. Yes. And, you know, if you've seen all the movies that Michael Mann has done since, especially Heat, uh, even The Insider, he enjoys playing with sound design and sound mixing to, to a level where it almost becomes expressive. And I never noticed up until that point and, and rewatching it again, how silence is so much a part of this movie. Uh, there's moments in the film where we will kind of travel out of a scene, like letting, you know, letting the war party leave a scene and we're panning down to the water and how the sound cuts out, completely cuts out, like yes. no, no sound. There's a difference between having atmosphere, very light atmosphere, where there's like a kind of controlled, quote unquote, silence, and there is absolutely nothing on the soundtrack. And, and for all intents and purposes, that's considered a no-no. Yes. Because in some cases, some sound mixers will disagree with me and say, well, that takes you out of the movie. Now, now your ear is fishing for audio in that world, and they don't get it, and it makes you go, oh, I'm watching a movie again. But there's many moments in this film that it doesn't feel like he's trying to manipulate you to think you're watching a movie. He's trying to allow you to heighten your senses the way that Hawkeye does and the way that his family does when they're hunting or that there is more to the soundscape than what the movie is pumping in. Yes. It, it's almost, it's almost like man is trying to trick your ears into hearing more. Yes. And that doesn't happen very often because in most cases and in most movies, they go louder, bigger, 5.1, put it all <laughs> in there. Let's just envelop <laughs> the audience and just make them fucking deaf afterwards. <laughs> and you know, if you look at any Michael Mann movie, he's look at the, the big bank chase, you know, the bank heist scene and heat that is as loud a decibel level a movie can get. Yes. And the same thing applies here. That hand Blu-rays caused more neighborhood complaints than almost oh. every teen party. As <laughs> soon as you fucking get to that thing, you you think you have it under control every time and it will literally wake up everyone everyone in your family and everyone in the adjoining house without a doubt. And there's moments, that, like especially in the Blu-ray, which has that 5.1 sound, where the, the silence is so different from what we were just hearing before you know, everything from you know I, I believe the the moment when hawkeye and uncas and everybody were, jumps out of the uh the the waterfall you know which in and of itself is such a beautifully surreal moment in an otherwise grounded movie because if you look at how man watches them fall in slow-mo but then has them juxt it, it like shows them falling in three separate shots and they're not continuous it yeah. almost feels like a German expressionism film. It, it's it's a weird like with all of the water cascading around them in slow motion, with the sound effects kind of dialing themselves down. It's very surrealist in a way that kind of creates this you know beauty in the chaos. Yeah. And then everything goes completely silent. And there's something there's a power to that that I don't think filmmakers use today. That I wish more did. I should I'm writing notes down for myself as well, but. To to that's that's a true confidence in your audience because other than having it be something that is part of the storytelling process, like in um, Mission Impossible, the first one, yeah. when De Palma drops all the sound out, there's a there's a a story reason for that, 
and that like that silence is that creates the tension here i think man is is doing that specifically to allow your eyes to take over in that moment and enjoy the sweep of the scope yes and and a couple without of them, a couple of them be, he, without having to be pumped in you know yeah and a couple of them he pairs with a visual so it's like he's got the uh, there's a balls in us because a few times he does it and it doesn't immediately correspond with the visual that you're looking at but there's one of yeah. them i remember there's like where you see a, a hand into a uh, gently embrace a plant I think it's Uncas's hand, and he moves yeah. the plant. It's I think it's there. Oh yeah, that's it, right. Yeah. That that reapproach to the Cameron plantation before you know post what they think is a um a war party with the French coming through, and when he does that, it is deathly silent, mm-hmm. and it's like before that he even touches the plant, it's deathly silent. Then when you see his hand approach the plant and he touches it it might just like there's like this tiny like paper shuffle like just it's a grating sound but it's so low in the frequency that you just realize that he's so perfectly just sort of making his way through the woods in deathly silence that yeah it's good it's i think it's a focus it's a focus technique right and like you said the confidence of going i'm gonna shift with the continuity ever so slightly just to get you know to to make something a little bit more surreal and subjective because it's kind of that pairing. It's pairing of like we're in from an objective view, but everyone knows if you, you know, even stick your head under the shower, like, you know, all of your sound gets messed up. And so I think there's yep. that thing of like you're kind of feeling what it's like to be enveloped by water in the same moment. So it's, yeah, he's, he's – this is where in each mo- – it's, it's that funny thing, Joe, where you go in each moment for each moment we'll do everything that serves that moment to its fullest potential. And sometimes that's not by adhering to the consistency of a rule book around what you should and shouldn't do. It's just like what he is feeling at that moment. And so it's, I think it comes down to... It's very instinctual. It feels very instinctual. It almost feels like something that he did not plan at first. I mean, knowing Michael Mann, he probably did, but you know, (laughs) it it feels almost effortless where they're you know in the mix stage and we've just been pummeled emotionally by that ending and now we're now we're going into the final sweeping pan shot as we get to what's left of our you know of our heroes as they're you know bidding uncas goodbye uh on that on that cliffside and again that's another moment where there is no sound until we get to them um, there's also another sound thing that i noticed when you have all of these crazy you know uh Crazy action at the end of the film, and Russell Means gets his uh, gets his comeuppance and gets his revenge, and Magua falls into the frame. I, I never noticed this before, but there's a difference between when you're in the sound of the sound mixing stage. There's a difference between the nat sound, the natural sound that you've captured on the day that your sound recorders capture on the day, and stuff that would be considered like ADR or just you know foley or whatever. Yes. And what I noticed is until we get to Hawkeye and Korra converging and hugging again, you can hear the sound change into the natural sound of them colliding and, and hugging and, and crying, which I also, I got a, just a quick side note. Um, it's a very confident and ballsy of a filmmaker to, ca- uh, to cast two people with exactly the same hair. <laughs> because say- Madeline, because in that moment, Madeline Stowe and Daniel Day-Lewis are together, they're, they're holding each other. And in most cases, 
you would want to have people with slightly different hair color so that you could differentiate between the two. And here, it almost feels like that was the whole point. The whole point is that matching. Converge as one, and then you don't know who is who. They are just one being in that moment. I blame Michael Mann for a lot of things. One of them is having guys who have long hair that that like many men aspire to and think that they're so goddamn good looking like Daniel Day Lewis and his long hair. And you're like, I'm never going to be able to grow that long hair. It's never going to look that good. I'm going to look like a weirdo and I can't do that. It's so, so luscious. And even Colin Farrell's Miami Vice hair, which again is ahead of its time. It's just Val like, Kilmer's hair in, Val, in heat. Val Kilmer's hair. Like you just, all the time you're like, God, all these guys with this luscious hair, I'm just never going to be able to do it. I'm just going to have to stick with my Neil McCauley short back and sides. And that's all that's going to happen for the rest my life God but damn if you ever watch it again listen to how the, the you know the sound has a different quality in that moment when they converge but it makes you almost like retroactively appreciate what the sound design was in that previous 12 like 11 minutes or so because it it borderlines on surrealism yes and and just the way that he uses score for those final 12 minutes in in like kind of an overture that brings everything together that is the most sweeping part of the film and yet it's not the biggest war scene it's not the ambush scene those scenes have no score there's nope. nothing to them there you know it's using the sound design of the muskets and the you know and the native americans screeching and all the violent you know uh, sound effects of of bones hitting you know weapons the horses neighing people screaming that's the score and that kind of <laughs> chaos is so much more exciting when you don't lean on having some kind of sweeping trevor jones or even like a james horner type score that highlights all the the bombastic action you know you get that in the french and indian war stuff and even that feels kind of superfluous and it almost feels secondary yes. it's these big moments that keep it silent and yet the most emotionally impactful scene gets the biggest cue like again that's michael mann breaking the rules knowing the rules knowing them and then then breaking breaking them that's that's the michael mann way knowing the language enough that you can break them and whether it's a modernized film like thief or heat to a classical film like last of the mohicans which again would a lot of people say oh it's michael mann's period film i don't believe that i don't i wouldn't subscribe to that at all that is just another that is if anything that's michael mann's most romantic film that just so happens to be set in the french indian war yeah there's um uh as part of the show i've spoken to awesome the awesome chris tapley and we were talking oh, I because, love chris. and chris is because of how embedded he was in the industry news segment he talked about michael mann tinkering with uh Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. Mm-hmm, I remember that. And, and and potentially that being a project and another Western. And so Chris was asking at the end of the show was like, I think I think this, the more that we talk about this movie as, as just a, a potential flex for Michael Mann's creativity, it's like, wouldn't you love to see Michael Mann go back and do a couple more period movies because of just what he can bring to it? Like that's, yeah. that authenticity, that... That, I mean, look that, at Ali. I mean, Ali, Ali was is. Ali. Ali's a period piece, yeah. you know. And I think it gets bogged down a little bit with 
you know, the fact that it's more, it's considered more a Will Smith vehicle than it is a Michael Mann movie. Yes. But when you hear those stories about how, you know, during the big uh, Rumble in the Jungle fight and he can see some dude's belt buckle from like a mile away and go, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. We got to go get that fucking belt buckle out of the shop. You know? <laughs> it's like, but that's, I want to be taken on a ride by that general. Yeah. I, you know, and, and if you, if anyone's listening to this has the Blu-ray, there's a 45-minute documentary on the making of it that's told in three parts <laughs> that has footage that looks like it was shot today. Yes. I don't think we would ever have that kind of archival footage. It looks like 16-millimeter that they were shooting. Um, but to see the lengths that they went to create this world around what could have just been a fucking love story, Yes. it, it makes you appreciate the, the craft that goes into it. But at the same time, that craft only gets you so far. Yes, it's it's the sweeping romance that this movie has wearing it on its sleeve, wearing its heart on its sleeve. That's the true set piece of what Michael Mann was doing. And and I think it is the one of the sexiest movies ever made. I, oh, my I God. Fully believe that. It, that 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 make out scene. Nothing much happens. Nothing much happens. Doesn't I mean, it, Joe? It, it, is it not the greatest standing shag that's ever been done in the history of shagging? Because I see, I think it's more of a snog. Right. I've, see, see, I, I, when I go back and watch it now, when I was younger, I was like, it's the most passionate snog ever. Well, now when I watch it, I'm like, nah, something's going down. Something's going down. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it was, I mean, you don't, what, if they did exchange fluids or not, <laughs> other than what came out of their mouths, if if there was actual, I, I hate to say, intercourse or lovemaking, <laughs> love if you making, will, lovemaking. I, you know what? It's 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 periphery. You know, it, the, the kiss and the looks that they give is more powerful, I, sexy. I, I think. It, I think also just everything about the directness of their exchanges also bleeds into the other directness of the exchange that happened in this movie. But just like there is something, is there not a more badass line? Like as a dude, when she's like, um, what are you looking at, sir? And he's like, I'm looking at you, miss. Like, Oh God, I got like, chills you're like, thinking about it. You're like, Oh, I wish I was that fucking cool in my whole life. I wish I've ever been that cool <laughs> just to say that. And then that's where the exchange happens and looks. And it's so great. But the dialogue is so deliberate. You know, every every everything that Day Lewis gets to deliver, you know, I think you and I are going to have a serious disagreement. Like, just bang, oh. bang, bang. He's just dropping, just dropping bombs. Like every great line in the movie, he really he does actually have it. So, oh, thank you so much for doing this with me. Thanks for coming oh, back, dude. Anytime, if you need more mohican talk i can totally do it that's well totally this is great. this is only this is only a, a limited series a little dalliance i thought you know i i um i i have had the luxury of experiencing one of the greatest you know kind of positive outpourings of of support and love uh, around one heat minute and you were there for like the whole journey so i, I can't thank you enough and so when oh, the my pleasure and listening along the whole time i know you were and, and so when the opportunity came to talk to mr man again about one of his great films it was just like it felt if it, it felt only in coming in keeping with the the show that there should be a limited series at least that talks about this profoundly incredible final act and uh, and the finale I, I just the, the best thing that, that you can do out of this you know is we get more people to watch the movie because I've noticed in recent years not a lot of people ha like talk about this movie and it was um, especially and it in the main canon it's his most successful movie 
yeah. financially ever. And so at the time, it was one of those ones where lots more people had seen Mohicans than had, than had seen Heat even when I began the One Heat Minute journey. But I feel like when you say Michael Mann, it's one of the last films that people now mention. It, it, becomes, it becomes almost a postscript where if you think about it from a financial standpoint, we wouldn't have Heat if there wasn't Last of the Mohicans. Correct. Because if that movie didn't do well, it would, like I don't think they, Warner Brothers would have given him yeah, the, lead, the, the, the leeway to do a two-hour, 45-minute crime epic. Yeah, no, Warner no Brothers, Warner Brothers, um, Warner Brothers banked on him 100% because of the good grace of Mohicans. Like, Mohicans was yeah. a smash for them. Like, what, 20 million? I think it made 100. Um, it was in the top 20 movies of that year, um, or like made 60 or something like that. So it made like at least um, triple its budget back. So that's that's huge. But look, thank you so much for being a part of this this little thing. Um, it's going to be so well, fun. When let me just say when you when you come up with the plan to do the insider scoop, <laughs> I will be there. I will totally be there. Well, look, if you want to do I, the I, key I, minute, I, I don't know about I, that. I can I can I can say I can say now. Um, I'm my my insanely talented friend Maria Lewis, a journalist and writer, and I are doing Josie and the Podcats. I'm producing that with her, which is a six episode limited series about Josie and the Pussycats. One of my favorite movies of the '90s. Oh we, no, actually that and, came out later. And if people are listening to this, um, and it's before we've actually released Josie, we have Rachel Lee Cook, Kay Hanley. Um, uh, we've, we've, we've got, we've, we've got some, we've got a murderer's row lined up for that show. Um, it's, it's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful thing that we've been able to pull, pull together on that. Um, so that, that's coming and I'm, and I'm just producing that alongside her, the the other one for fans who who are listening. And I suppose I'll say this and I'll keep it in the episode is, um, Travis Woods, who's a terrific writer for Brightwall Dark Room and joined me on One Hit Minute a couple of times uh, and yeah. I have collaborated. Well, I kind of pushed him into it, if you like. Uh, a, new, <laughs> a, a new deep dive podcast on his favorite film, which uh, I'm producing called Increment Vice, which is Ooh, wow. the inherent vice, not minute by minute, podcast it's more like exchange by exchange scene by scene interaction by interaction 45 episode series um which is launching very soon as well so uh those ones are there and of course you're now listening to the last 12 minutes of the mohicans and um yeah so so a couple of a uh, couple of good ones coming up you're doing god's work blake thank you very much <laughs> guys joe lynch the incredible talent behind mayhem which um, I'm I'm so glad is just getting more and more love uh, around Ready or Not coming out. People oh, going man, back got to a the major Sam- signal boost because it was go, like go, it was back that back pocket movie that would people would walk around and go, oh yeah, if you saw Ready or Not, you should check out Mayhem. I'm like, thank you very much. <laughs> thank That's you very much. Helps. Go there. You go. Like it all helps. Um, then the Samara weaving uh, the uh, completest catalog. People are going back to Mayhem and also the Steven Yuen. Um, which uh, people are going back and doing, so that's great. Obviously, Point Blank on Netflix, one of the most popular um, action movies ever released on the entire platform, and this man was the director. Mate, Ooh. thank you so much for being a part of it. I can't wait to chat to you more on whatever the next mad thing I undertake. Let's do it. 